This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly sponsored by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. As a city supporter, we know you value delivery, and McDelivery is up there with the very best. You'll always be winning with McDelivery because just like Kevin De Bruyne, McDelivery puts your order right on a plate. So the only thing left to say is, are you in? Order now on the McDonald's app and you can also get rewards points delivered as well. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for you tomorrow. Only via the app at participating restaurants, 18 plus, rewards registration required, points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. City arrived at the Kenny with a form book more inconsistent than the Luton Airport departure and arrivals board. But after 60 minutes of marvelling at the main entrance to the stadium, mythologised by football Twitter last year, the Blues got it together and head back to Manchester with all three points. Today is Monday the 11th of December. I'm your host, Ollie Kirsch. I'm Alex Michelle. And I'm Andrew Detmer. And this is the City Report Podcast. It's here for good to win! It is a thrilling start for Manchester City. The fastest ever goal in an FA Cup final. 2023 is the City treble year. So, gents, going to get straight into this one, and I want to know what your moment of the match was, because this wasn't quite the straightforward affair that we thought it'd be. Uh, there were a few couple of twists and turns, a couple of controversial moments, and uh, certainly some player performances and player moments to talk about. So, Alex, come to you first, mate. What was your moment of the match? I think my moment of the match has to be the second goal. I mean, it's a little bit obvious as it's the winner, but I think that's the reason that's the moment of the match for me is because in that passage of play, Luton were trying to sort of play on the front foot and be aggressive. And it was our pressing and our players' aggressiveness in the front line that caused that mistake. You know, it came off of Julian's face. And then we went down the right flank. It was sort of a four-on-four. Julian plays it across. Jack finishes it. And I think just that goes to show that sort of energy we, we've seen to be lacking in the past few matches. And it was really nice to see that pressing, that that energetic play from, from the front three, and it resulted in a goal in the match-winning moment. So, yeah, that's the one for me. And a Grealish goal is always good for the stocks. Andrew, moment of the match? I mean, going taking the Grealish goal off the table does kind of uh, limit the options here, given that I would not say this was a match of many fine moments by our boys. In blue, um, I think the other one that I would go with is, I think it would have been roughly the 
second, 93rd minute, Pep is kind of gesticulating to get um, a defender on the pitch to just close things down, which to me um, kind of sums up how these five weeks have been in that, um, you know, getting three points at Luton away, I don't think any of us two months ago would have thought was going to be something that was going to be as gut-wrenching and um, nerve-wracking of an affair as it ended up being. So I, I think the fact that we've got, you know, several attacking options that could have been brought on, um, we have lots of good attackers on the pitch, but when it came down to it, Pep's decision was to bring on another center back to try to close things out. Yeah, and we're, I'm going to get on to, in a moment, uh, how the game didn't didn't quite play out, how we might have anticipated it to. But the, the moment of the match for me, I mean, first of all, just want to mention the atmosphere. I think the City fans were unbelievable. Um, and I don't know if it was maybe a touch of nostalgia, uh, you know, playing at, playing at a ground that kind of harks back to our own banter era, maybe, that, that kind of traditional uh, terrace football ground. But the fans were fantastic. But my moment in the match actually goes to the Luton fans um, <laughs> because they were singing 2-1 to the referee. And that's okay. Home crowd put a bit of pressure on the ref, might feel aggrieved at one or two little decisions that have, that have gone against them. Obviously, they didn't get the benefit of the replays for the second goal. So they might have thought it was a handball from Alvarez, not his face, etc., etc. But what made me laugh and what gives them a moment of the match for me was that after the, uh, after the VAR review for the red card, which was blatantly a red card and another officiating howler, they continued to then sing 2-1 to the referee. So I admire their persistence. Uh, I admire their audacity after an absolute <laughs> shocker of a decision like that. Uh, but fair play. So I, I want to move on to, to how the match panned out, kind of a, a, a broad view here. Near the beginning of the season, we were fresh off the back of a treble. Luton were fresh off promotion. And one of the narratives was, or at least one of the questions being posed was, Will Man City versus Luton be, on paper, the biggest mismatch in Premier League history? The single, on paper, biggest mismatch in Premier League history. Um, Today would be second, I guess, for that, only to Luton at the Etihad. Um, But it didn't quite, quite play out that way. Why, Alex? Yeah, I think... Something you hinted at there is, of course, the venue. I think there is obviously a massive difference between playing at Kenilworth Road and playing at the Etihad. And, you know, we'll see it later in the season. And when we when we come to do the review of that, when it comes time, I think we'll have a really nice comparison there to, you know, re- really share that that sort of insight about the, the intangibles there. I think the alongside that, the other thing for me is Luton played a style that, that I I, I labeled as smash and grab earlier. And I think that's used as a, a term that, that puts teams down, generally speaking. But I, when I used it earlier on Twitter, I meant it in a very positive way. And what I mean by that is they know that they don't have the quality of City. They're not going to come into a match like this and, and play like they're the better team because on paper they know they're not the better team. But this is football and football does not work that way. And I think for them, the way that they played in terms of being aggressive and not just dropping back into their own box 
for the entirety of the 90 minutes, you know, they were pressing us, they were playing on the front foot as much as they could. And then when they had to, when we did get into the final third, they sort of resigned to the fact that, okay, we need to get men behind the ball now. And I think there was one passage of play in particular. I can't remember. I think it was probably around the the start of the second half when maybe actually the end of the first half, when we had a sort of fast break opportunity, it was four on four Grealish got the ball out wide and then, he sort of stalled for a second and all of a sudden Luton had eight men behind the ball. And I think just their sort of persistence in playing the football that they needed to play, which is, you know, when they need to get men behind the ball. And then when we did make a mistake at the end of the first half, probably one of the clearest mistakes we made all match, they get the ball out wide, which is one of their strengths. You know, they're a team that gets the ball wide and, and plays a lot of crosses into these tall bodies in the middle. They play an almost an inch perfect cross to the back post and they convert on it. And that's what I mean by smash and grab is, you have to just take your opportunities as they come. And even when you're on paper, as you said, one of the biggest mis- mismatches in Premier League history, you're always going to have some opportunity in the match. It's just whether or not you can take advantage of it. And so for me, that's it. It's like, and I think that could also be classed as the moment of the match. Their their goal is mm. they mm. took that opportunity and we were nervous in, in the final 10 minutes of that match because you knew that they could have another moment like that because we kept giving them corner after corner. So for me, that's it. They, they just played the way that they needed to play to beat City. And yeah, they didn't get it done in the end, but they committed to that. And I think that's the biggest thing for me alongside the crowd. Yeah. I don't know if we'll have any Luton fans listening to this episode. I hope we do. Um, and I just want to give them full credit because they did. They they played more courageously. They played more offensively. And they played with less fear than we've seen from even some of our top four or top six rivals, really. Uh, you know, we've we've had games against Chelsea. We've had games against Man United uh, in recent memory. Um, potentially Spurs as well, maybe, over the last couple of years, where those teams have set up against us in the way that you might have expected a Luton to set up against us. So... Full credit to them. Um, and, and, and Andrew, is it problematic, though, that a team like Luton can can come to play football against City and be effective with it? Because the idea here is, right, that teams shouldn't, in theory, come to play football against City because they're going to get rolled over 4, 5, 6, 7, nil, whatever it is. Is it a bit of a red flag for us that we've had a team like Luton come to play and we haven't thrashed them. We've, they've actually really caused us some problems. I, I don't think so, because I think, you know, if you look at the stats, to say that they came to play football, I think slightly overstates. They, they were not wide open and expansive at all times. You know, they only had 35% possession. They had four total shots, 0.33 XG, 0.25, or not 0.25, sorry, that was the post-shot XG. No, that was 0.25 XG of that 0.33 is on... You know, it's been a mad day when Detman's tripping up up over his own numbers. (laughs) (laughs) But what I would say is, you know, they have a very effective style and system that has done well for them at Kenilworth Road. It has not performed as admirably when they have gone away to other grounds. So I think if we were at the Etihad and Luton had played this way, I would be far more concerned much like United should be concerned about the fact that they won one <laughs> nil at Old Trafford to this team. Like yeah. that is a very different beating them 
at Kenilworth Road by one goal is very different than beating them only by one goal mm. when you're at home and you have your own fans. But I mean, it's a whole factor of things. But to your point about them, kind of their approach, no one believes in them. Like no, like you've said, it's the biggest mismatch. They are the you know tiniest minnow to really ever be promoted to the Premier League. If they go down, no one is going to be surprised. So why, you know, spend the next 12 months panicking about the fact you might get relegated when you weren't expecting to be promoted anyways? Go for it. Try to get some results. Like, have some moment. I mean, those Luton fans, regardless of how the season turns out, they're all going to remember drawing with this Liverpool team this season. Like, that is a memory to have. And if you're a smaller team who probably does not ever have a shot at dreaming of European glory winning the league, just given how the sport works now, I think you'd rather have moments like they did today where they went toe to toe with us, where they like, what does just like surviving and being like terrified actually do? I mean, okay, I want to stop you there actually then I want to ask you the question. So I'm, I'm a little bit more pragmatic when it comes to these conversations, in my opinion, and I'd love to know if you think you two, either of you think the same, in my opinion, surviving in the Premier League would be a greater achievement for Luton than getting promoted to the Premier League. So from my point of view, I actually do think they would benefit from playing a little bit more pragmatically. Well, you are right. You can never take those moments away. You know, the celebrations when they went 1-0 up and you know they, they had half time, etc. against the treble winners, that, that's, that's off the scale for them. That's fine. But I think, and I don't want to spend too much time on Luton, because this is a City podcast, but they, they, as I said, you know, the biggest minnows or the smallest minnows to come to the Premier League, and I think I think they deserve their minutes even on this pod. Um, I think they would do well to stay up. I'm not criticising how they came to play. I've just praised it to no end. Uh, but I'm not sure I agree with you, Andrew. So I, I get what you're saying. Like I think it would be a tremendous achievement to survive, but I'm talking more from the standpoint of for the players and the fans, because there have been clubs who have like struggled and tried to hold on for dear life to survive. And eventually, you know, time comes for us all. Right. And they go down. And frankly, a lot of times those clubs that have done everything they can to stay in the league, when they go down, they go down hard Mm -hmm. because they did everything they could to try to stay up. Luton who do not have the means to like really go out and try to like buy the players that you would typically think, Oh, this is how we're going to stay up. They're still going to bank a good chunk of cash from this mm-hmm. season. And if they go down, they're going to go down in a much better position than they were when they came up. They can build and grow organically. And then, you know, eventually be in a position where getting promoted, it's like, okay, we can go out and spend a little bit of money to you know improve the squad and then try to make a run for it. But in their current kind of existence and form where, you know, they're in the process of moving to a new state. Like this is not the time to go out and like try to like do everything you can to survive. And if you know that you can't do that, if I'm a fan, I would much rather, you know, have this season of like, let's just see what happens. than live through what Southampton fans lived through for like three <laughs> years in a row where it was just constant. Like, God, we're terrible. We're not getting anybody there. There is no hope. Clinging Somehow survive the next year. Yeah, it just that to me that's that's not what I would want to live through. It's like what Everton have been doing, really, isn't it, Alex? For the last few years, just kind of clinging on for dear life, trying to avoid that swirling toilet of relegation. 
Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I kind of see it both ways because I think in terms of the business sense, like if you're operating a club from the highest level, then yes, of course, staying up is the top priority because there's nothing better than that this season. As you said, you expect them to go back down and that would be the biggest achievement overall from the season. But if you do play a way that is overly pragmatic and you still don't get the results, I think that's what Andrew's hinting at here is I, I sort of reminisce also to Sheffield United, I think, what was it, three seasons ago? The last time they went back down, they sort of played that way where, where they tried to pretty much park the bus against almost everyone, try to play on the counter and whatnot. Sort of the typical way that you would uh, sort of accustom a quote-unquote pr- pragmatic side to be. And when you do perform terribly still playing that way, it just takes all the sort of energy out of the crowd where mm. by the second half of the season, if you're sitting bottom of the table and you're still playing that way, there's no hope. Whereas I think what Andrew's getting at here is if you are playing this this sort of you know aggressive style in some senses and you're still bottom of the table, you still have these moments to cling on to. And I think that's the biggest thing is balancing the sort of pragmatism of trying to stay up and the, the business side of things of that being the biggest achievement with you know maintaining your fan base and maintaining the sort of ethos of the club there. And so it's definitely two clashing ideologies. And as a fan, I would certainly lean on the side that I would rather my team play a more expansive style and, and be a bit less pragmatic. And maybe that doesn't mean that you stay up by mm. the end of the season, but hey, at least you have you know those moments to cling on to. Well, there you go. If you're going to go down, go down in a blaze of glory. And uh, it's interesting because that, that was the opposite philosophy that the owners of Leeds took when they sacked Bielsa, wasn't it? You know, he refused to change his style. They suffered, albeit with some incredible moments, and he got the boot. And as you said, Alex, maybe from a business perspective, it doesn't match up, but the fans would rather fans would rather it was that way. Anyway, so we're going to go for a little break. And after the break, we'll talk about, we'll come back to City, talk about some of the performances and, of course, statistics from Andrew himself. Catch you after the break. Don't go anywhere. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The Etihad Stadium really is wonderful at this time of the season, and the same goes for McDelivery. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Welcome back to the City Report podcast. This is the match review for Luton, our win away at Luton. Um, Stick with us though this week and don't forget to catch up on our episodes last week as well. Loads of content coming thick and fast with the fixtures. So um, one of the biggest inevitable talking points from today when we talk about players, and no, it's not the Grealish versus Doku debate. Go and find a different podcast if you want that one today. I'm so bored of it. But um, Andrew, what do you make of how we set up today without Haaland? And of course, 
what impacts that had that had on the pitch and uh, you know how how we approached our forward play without the big man up top. Yeah, I mean, I think if you you can see it in two ways. One, I think City had far better control um, for large portions of the match because not only were was there another player capable of kind of pressing and possessing the ball in a way that Holland just oftentimes is not going to do. It also meant that we weren't looking for that kind of final ball to Holland that a lot of times, given the lack of a KDB in the squad currently, the players that do it, they do not come off as often as Kev's would. So if they don't come off, you turn the ball over and then you might be in a you know position to be exposed. I mean, I think the defensive performances today dramatically better than what we've seen across the previous four matches. You know, only giving up those four shots. Yes, Luton do not have the quality that the other teams do, but, you know, corners happen, like, it's they're very hard to defend. So, like, setting that aside to only give up 0.08 XG, like, I'm very happy with that. The other thing, I think if you just look at the shot map, the middle of the box, there's just nothing coming from there. And I think you can very much see, like, that's the lack of Holland, which... When we were chasing the game, I think you could put argue and say there were moments where not having Holland on the pitch made the kind of chasing Luton down a little more difficult. But it also meant that we weren't exposing ourselves during that chase, I think, in a way that we kind of did against Spurs where, you know, we finally get ahead. But then because Holland is on the pitch and the way like we just weren't set up to hold on to it. So once we went ahead in this one, I was far less worried other than, again, I mean, you know, they had a couple corners, anything can happen, but this was not the wide open, exposed defensive midfield we have seen. And I mean, a lot of that does have to do with the fact that Rodri was back in the side. Love that, because Rodri was the next word on my lips. Squawker tweeted earlier saying Rodri is now unbeaten in each of his last 44 games for City across all competitions. Very quick look, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. If my eyes aren't deceiving me, I think that was 35 wins and nine draws in Rodri's last 44 games, all comps. Um, Alex, how important is he? Are we, are we a one-man team? No, definitely not, but he is incredibly important. I think I would agree with exactly what Andrew was saying there about this team being more compact as a collective unit today and sort of playing as a well-oiled machine. And I'll, I'll come back to Roger in one sec. I just want to put a little note in here about Holland, Holland's absence and, and Doku's absence as well. I think both those two in particular are so unique that without them, City have to play more as a collective. And I think that's what we saw today. And I, I was sort of very pleased to see that because I feel like that's the sort of collective performance that we needed. And with Holland trying to play him in behind, it feels like we've sort of been caught in two minds recently in games, whereas today it felt like we were just playing our city football that, that we've known and loved since Pep has been here. And I think that's the biggest thing. And, you know, with Rodri coming back in, and I think also I have to shout out Kovacic here too. I thought he he was an excellent partner for Rodri in that midfield today and also added another mm. level of solidity. But, you know, Rodri just adds a level of command in that midfield that I think when we saw the midfield with Stones, Akanji, and Alvarez, all of those three aren't the sort of marshals of a midfield. They're all great sort of passengers in a midfield. They're all great to accompany someone and add that extra flair in a midfield. But you always need that sort of central focal point. And Rodri's the glue that holds this team together in that sense because 
he holds a sort of aura about him almost in that midfield where, first of all, you know you're not really going to take the ball off him. He's very, very press resistant. And doing so, he just adds a sort of level of arrogance to City's play that is like, we are the team that is going to win here. And even if that result doesn't come off, it's how we play and how we sort of come come across. And I think that has sort of a psychological impact on the other team. And it just, you know, really sort of solidifies the the sort of power and control that the City team should have. Yeah, if if the other lads are the cogs, he's the oil. He keeps the whole thing turning. He really does. Um, Andrew, just coming on to some of the other players then, there was some interesting fluidity in the front lines, uh, amongst the front lines today. Notwithstanding Grealish, who pretty much does not move from that left-hand side position, Foden, Bernardo, and in some cases Alvarez were, I don't want to say swapping, but there was definitely an element of fluidity amongst them. And I think, you know, a couple of people calling for Foden to stick himself in the middle and stay there. Uh, sometimes Alvarez dropped forward and Foden was trying to make the runs through the lines, etc. It, it's odd because I was thinking that Alvarez was going to play as an out-and-out striker today without Haaland in the side, but that wasn't the case. How are you, What are your thoughts on how we, how we try and set up going forward when we don't have Haaland? Because it could be another couple of fixtures, two, three, four games before we see him again. Do we need to just do a like-for-like replacement Alvarez for Haaland? Or are we okay with, with this fluidity? Alvarez coming back into that attacking midfield role, Foden going beyond him, Bernardo coming central, moving back out. Or do we really need to be finding some fixed positions for these guys? I don't think it comes down to finding fixed positions. And I, I think, you know, just because Alvarez is a striker does not mean that he is a like-for-like replacement with Holland. I actually don't think there's any player on the planet who's a like-for-like replacement hmm. for Holland. Not just because of the level of goal scoring that Holland brings, but he is a unique threat at his size and athleticism and skill that doesn't really exist out there. So, you know, if you bring Alvarez in, you're not going to be trying to hit crosses, you know, into Alvarez. I mean, you might try to do direct, you know, direct through balls for him to run onto. That is a little more of his game. But for me, I think this does, as Alex say, harken back to the collective mentality mm-hmm. that we've seen City oftentimes perform at their best. And even with Holland and the team at the end of last season, all of the pieces were moving around him and no one really had a fixed position, which you can see, you know, Stones was literally playing everything from center back, defensive mid, right back to right wing at times last season, right? So if anything, I think this was a positive to see a movement back towards not being such a rigid structure and, you know, a rigid game plan and say, okay, he's, you know, I mean, Grealish did cut inside at times and then someone would overlap into the left or, you know, Foden would drift inside and Alvarez would go out right. Like it creates moments where the defense has to make a decision. Who do I go with? Who do I, or do I follow or do I stay? And when you do that repeatedly, you are more likely to create a moment of indecision that you can then take advantage of. And so for me, you know, there are not more contrasts with how we played against Villa to how we played today in terms of our collective mentality, the hunger, the drive, like this to me was a very positive performance. Yes, it was not great to go behind, but I think a lot of the people who were frustrated during the match, I think that is a little bit, we have been in such a rut as a team that we were so focused on 
how we got to the result in the sense of we had to come from behind. We didn't win by like five goals that we missed the fact that this does at least a little bit show that the team seems to be working together in a way that I think we should all want to see. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll hold that thought for one moment then, because there is one more talking point I want to get through before we finish. So just very quickly, Alex, coming up to the halfway point of the season, uh, Andrew men- uh, Andrew mentioned Grealish being overlapped on the outside a couple of times today, and that was Gvardiol. A couple of barnstorming runs. I, I think he did quite well today. So... Today and also across the first half-ish of the season, what are your thoughts on him? I think he's been exceptional. And of course, he's a young player. And there's one thing that I want to point out here, which is, especially as we saw today, well, yesterday when everyone was listening to this, when you have both Vardiol and Ake playing together, back when Vardiol was playing at Leipzig, he would partner Willy Orban in sort of a back two with these two fullbacks who would push up. And it was a very similar structure to what we saw today, where it's almost a sort of 2-4 or 4-2 in possession. And the thing is that he's playing out wide now, and he's not playing the role that Ake is playing. So there's a shift that Vardiol has had to undertake here at City, which is even when he's playing a sort of similar defensive structure to what he was playing last season in the Bundesliga, he's playing a different role. And as a 21-year-old, as a player who is super young, coming into one of the best sides you know, we've ever seen in European football, there's a lot of adjustments that need to be made there. And I think, you know, he's been brilliant, but of course there are going to be some speed bumps. And I think he's caught a bit of flack for that. But I think it's a bit of an overstatement because he has been brilliant. And with defenders, of course, if you're brilliant for 95% of the match and you make a mistake in the other 5%, it's all for naught pretty much. Like That's all that matters when you're a defender. So for me, I really like to see that today, I think he had much more attacking license than he has had in you know, most of his other appearances this season. And there were some really, really nice passages of play where he was making some brilliant turns, you know, really, really deceiving on the ball when, when they were trying to man mark him. And I think I just have really high hopes for him. I, I think, you know, the only way he can go from here is up because under Pep, we've seen that players only have really an upward trajectory. And I think especially after we saw Holland's introduction last season where he comes in and takes the league by storm, I feel like a lot of us forget the sort of second se- second season syndrome that happens under Pep, where typically players come in and their first season, they don't perform very well. And I think Holland completely sort of did away with those expectations because he is this complete anomaly. But I think we have to sort of reset that as fans, as City fans, and, and know that players like Vardiol aren't going to just be superstars the moment that they come into the league. And so for me, I think with that expectation, sort of bringing that level down a bit, for me, he's been exceptional. And yes, he's had some mistakes, but I think what I've seen from him, there's so much promise there. And I think he's just going to get better and better. And the roles that he's going to be able to take up in this side are just going to get more and more expansive as time goes on. Yeah, yeah, fully agree. I certainly don't forget it with the first season syndrome. I think the only two players that have broken the mold, really, in terms of first season under Pep, have been Ruben Diaz and Erling Haaland. If I'm not mistaken, there hasn't really been anyone that's kind of blown the roof off in the first season. Rodri is probably the best example of it. He really struggled in his first year. Uh, and now look at him. All right, Andrew, just before we wrap up, half tongue-in-cheek, half not this question. 
Uh, we're quite used now, despite what Jurgen Klopp says, you know, that bullshit about being 15 points ahead by this stage of the season, which we never are. Uh, the usual cadence for City title winning season is struggling over the first few months, kind of taking a little bit of time to figuring things out and then going on some stupid 14, 15, 16, 17 game winning run. Does the title charge start here or is it going to be a few weeks yet before we start to hit our uh, archery rhythm? I think if we are going, I mean, one, I don't know that we're going to have the ability to do what we've done in the past for two reasons. One, I think competition at the top of the league is stronger than it's ever been Two, our issue with injury and squad size, squad size could make a run difficult. Now, if we get lucky with injuries and some of the results, I think we could, I do think that we may be seeing a lower points total for a title winner this season anyway. So that is useful, but if city are going to put together a run, they're going to need to start doing it now. The difficult part with that is with the Club World Cup kind of interrupting the typical rhythm. You know, who knows what we're going to see, but to only be four points back after the type of results that we have had over the past month um, shows that as bad as many fans want to make it seem, the levels under, like, that's the levels Pep has reached where being four points off of first despite the fixtures that we've had and the results we've had, like that's pretty remarkable. Um, And so I'm still confident um, that we're going to be in and amongst, you know, the people fighting for a title by the end of the season. But these, I would say the next two months are really critical in the sense that we have to manage the squad and manage injuries really, really well, given the limited resources Pep has to get through all these fixtures that are coming up in terms of players. Yeah, uh, personally, I'll be doing a rain dance for the return of KDB, uh, and I do hope that we dip into the January transfer market. But without mentioning the transfer window too soon, because I'm sure we're going to have loads of episodes about it, <clears throat> we will wrap up there. Um, listeners, as I said, go well, you probably don't want to go back and catch up on the episodes about uh, the Villa Resort or anything else. So they will catch Andrew being unusually emotional, so it might be worth going back to check on those. But we'll have reviews and pre-match previews, etc. for the games coming up. We've got Red Star during the week and Crystal Palace as well uh, coming up next weekend. So... Subscribe wherever you listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc., etc., and don't miss a show. Alex, thank you very much. Been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure. Andrew, thank you. Cheers as always, Ali. All right. And this has been the City Report podcast. We will catch you next time. Make sure you're geared up for Man City's end of season running with McDelivery. Great food delivered right to your door. By using McDelivery, you won't miss a moment of City's crucial running, and just like Kevin De Bruyne, they deliver your order exactly where you want it. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. Are you in? At participating restaurants only, 18 and plus, serving times, delivery fee, and terms apply. See McDonald's.com. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.